0: hello clinton
1: hello nick how are you (laughs) i'm very well thank you very much and how are you i'm good thank you Uh, really good in good spirits
0: oh excellent well that's both of us then that makes two of us because we just had a a wonderful energizing and uh, encouraging conversation with Noreen Blanlue from uh, the Co-Production Network for Wales. Um, I was very, very taken with what she shared there.
1: What did you think? Yeah, I was, uh, my main takeaway uh, uh, point from the conversation was about transforming co-production culture. And uh, to mention, uh, you know, we, in that conversation came up about culture equals values times behaviours and for me the the biggest thing that um uh uh, key message for me that I think our listeners and uh should take from the the conversation is only when we take out values off the page and actually live them can we say we have a strong co-production culture Mm. that's what I would say
0: Welcome everyone to our latest episode of Changing It Up. We're delighted to have with us here today Noreen from the Co-Production Network of Wales and we're going to be exploring all things co-production. So Noreen, welcome along. It's lovely to have you.
2: Thank you very much. It's a delight and an honour to be with you today.
0: (laughs) Brilliant. Oh, great. An honour. No one's ever said that before. Uh, Noreen's just told us, listeners, she is a subscriber to the podcast. So that's something that Clinton and I didn't even realise you could do. Uh, let alone that there was one. So, uh, if 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 you like what you uh, you're hearing, subscribe. Uh, how do you subscribe, Noreen? Out of interest,
2: I think it depends on which platform you're listening in. Um without plugging any brands um, uh, deliberately but i i um listen on spotify and you can follow the podcast as a whole and then you get notifications when new episodes are posted so that's quite handy to keep track of stuff that you like listening to so i can speak from that experience and other platforms probably have similar ways of following
0: brilliant well there you go uh subscribe listener Uh, That's the way forward. Um, So brilliant. Anyway, lovely to have you with us. Uh, We'll we'll crack on now with our quick fire questions. Okay. And then our meat questions. First quick fire question. Noreen, if you could only eat one dish or meal for the rest of your life, what would it be?
2: Oh, I know this one. I know this one. I I think about this a lot. (laughs) Maybe because I'm French. I'm constantly thinking and talking about food. Um, And I've decided that potatoes and butter is the thing that I can have every day, every meal for the rest of my life. And it's a slight cheat because actually, you know, if you have a cooked potato and some butter, you can refry it, you can mash it, you can, you know, do things with it that sort of changes it while it's still potatoes and butter. And apparently I've learned on a fact podcast that uh, potatoes and butter give you all the essential minerals and vitamins that you need to stay healthy. So it's also nutritionally
1: sufficient.
0: Fabulous. There you go. (laughs) Not just an interesting answer, but an educational answer. Thank you very
1: much for that. Most definitely. Um, Noreen, welcome. Um, My question is, uh, and if you could only go to one more place on holiday for the rest of your life, where would that be?
2: Is that one more as in an additional place I've never been to, or just one place apart from where I'm living?
1: Well, it's how you would like to interpret okay. the <laughs> question.
2: I'm over-engineering this. I'm going to choose Pembrokeshire. But it's only down the road, you know, a couple of hours on the, in by car on the train. And actually, it's wild and it's beautiful. And it's got the sea and it's got walks and it's got beautiful countryside and cute little towns. And it's just a nice place to slow down in and take a break Mm. in and I never get bored of it the the landscapes in Wales are generally changing and and beautiful and and varied and and there's a special place in my heart for Pembrokeshire especially the north coast Mm.
1: interesting you've sold it to me
2: (laughs) come visit come to Wales when we can (laughs) most definitely
0: and how do you like to pass the time Noreen do you have any particular hobbies or interests (laughs)
2: too many things are jostling in my head to come out at once um lockdown has been pretty busy for us for organization in the past year so not a huge amount of time and hobbies have been a bit restricted to re-binging Netflix series and um and you know I like making Craft things and kind of taking on new crafts, and at the moment I'm toying into should I try lino cutting and you know that kind of thing. But I think they come in phases. It's like I'm just looking for displacement activity, and then I'll do it for a bit, and then I'll look for a different displacement activity. Um, But I've been rewatching all of Parks and Recreation recently. I'm in season six at the moment, and I had watched it in in, totally before, and it just makes me laugh so much because especially with a co-production lens and a kind of public service lens, watching it and and people's behaviours and and the patterns are just brilliant but also it's just nice and kind and and just a, a funny distraction so it's so quite boring hobbies um an interesting hobby but which i haven't really done much of in the past year is that i ride a motorbike wow. um and I enjoy riding just as a mode of transport. It's more fun and it's more, it's slightly more environmentally friendly than a car. And it's much easier to park than a car. And so before I used to take it into town for meetings and it's my general mode of transport for the, the close vicinity, but recently I haven't been anywhere. So I have, it's in the garage and a bit neglected right now, but hopefully I get out again soon.
1: Wow, well, you daredevil! <laughs> um, okay um my question is i suppose builds on um you referenced netflix so my question is what was the last tv show you watched that you really enjoyed and why
2: i'm going to go with shit creek and I took some convincing on it because I watched the first episode when it came out, and everybody was like, "Oh, this is amazing! Everybody should watch it." So I watched the first episode, and I thought, "These people are obnoxious. I'm not watching this. This this is not going to happen. This is not my thing." And my friends were like, "No, no, no. Stick with it. Just watch the second one, and you know, give it a chance." And from the second episode, I was sold. And and it is, you know, it's the premise of the program that these people are obnoxious, but actually, they go through such a journey of growth, and there's a tolerance and a kindness in everybody there. You know, they're they're really They're a strange family compared to this environment that they land in. And yet they're received with kindness. They're received with, you know, not that um, judgmentally or critically. And, you know, and there's this general acceptance that people are who they are and that's okay. And that's just so uplifting and just a balm
1: for the soul, I think.
0: Funny enough, uh, uh, Sean mentioned that one as well, didn't she, Clinton?
1: Yeah, most. uh, And that's on my uh, list to. To watch, you know, because uh, I've been hearing quite a lot of rave reviews about it, so I'm definitely going to uh, watch it. Now. Yeah,
0: Stuff. I watched the first episode too, and then didn't get past that, so maybe I need to.
1: Yeah,
2: give number the episode two a chance, and it does turn things around a little bit.
0: Well, uh, and slightly more highbrow question now: What was the last okay. book you read?
2: Oh no, that's the one where I fall over. Um, I generally have very little brain space left at the end of the day and so I've been reading and rereading and re-re-reading um, my collection of Terry Pratchett Discworld novels um, because they're easy and familiar and I can just fall asleep on them. It kind of shuts my brain down and stops me thinking about work and then I fall asleep and it's fine because I know the stories so well that it doesn't matter if I drop off in the middle of a page. Um, so it's not very fancy and not, it's not new I have a, a number of new books on my bookshelf um waiting for a bit of brain capacity but right now it's revisiting like a comfort blanket my uh, cherry Pratchett collection
1: okay. <sighs> Nori this question is the uh, silver bullet of questions the million pound question what would you do in 12 months with a million pound
2: in 12 months, oh, that's a lot of money to spend in not a lot of time.
1: Yeah. And the clock's ticking.
2: Oh God, countdown, yeah. countdown. Um, 12
1: months starts well,
2: now. <laughs> the 12 months have started. Um, well, you know, that'd be the, the kind of, what I think of standard, you know, sort out, You know, pay off the mortgage, pay off my mum's mortgage, pay off, you know, families and friends, kind of, you know, that kind of getting that security. But I think whatever's left, um, I would probably, figure out some kind of investment so that that we could draw down some interest on an ongoing basis to support the organisation, to support the co-production network, actually, because we're still quite a young organisation and we're still at the stage where funding can be an issue and actually having a regular source even if it's not a you know a huge amount of money Mind you, the interest on a million would be decent but you know that would be enough to keep us ticking over comfortably and have that safety net of you know we can have a member of staff in post to look after things and and keep things running nicely and keep the oils the wheels oiled so i think that would be a a bit of an investment towards the long term a bit of a cheat i know because that's not really spending it in 12 months i could invest it in 12 months
0: yeah, yeah, they're spent, isn't it? <laughs> Money's gone out the bank.
2: There we are.
0: <laughs> great answer. Thank you very much. And well done for surviving the quick fire questions. Thank you. We can now proceed to stage two the uh, slightly more Fast. meaty question. <laughs> Fast. Uh, yes. Um, thank you very much for that, Irene. That was great. Um, so, the first question is around your work could you tell us a little bit about that and and also why you think why you're passionate about co-production and why you think it's an important approach
2: I came to co-production through tangents of tangents I haven't got a public sector or third sector background so when I encountered co-production it was new to me Um, and it was through a research project I was assisting on it was collecting case studies and examples of practice and it blew my mind how transformative it can be and how great an impact it can make on people's lives just through you know it sounds simple I know it's it's hard in practice but just through listening and really valuing people's wisdom and experience and input and having these constructive conversations and acting on them. So the principles are so straightforward and heart-centered and you know really human. But it really changes lives and communities and you know, in services and efficiencies and and all the rest, all the things that fall out of it. So before that, you know, I, part of my background has been working as a coach and a uh, personal and professional coach. And, and for me, that embodies a similar approach that people know they have that inherent wisdom and they know what they need or what they want. They don't always know that they know. And so our role is to facilitate that emergence and, and enabling people to find their answers for them to be owned and sustainable. And so for me, philosophically, it was completely in line with in my belief systems. Um, so that's how I initially got involved in co-production. Um, The research project turned into uh, putting on some events to share what we found, turned into campaigning and writing a letter to the first minister in Wales and asking him to do do co-production in public services as a a way of doing things in Wales. That was back in 2013. Um, And the idea was gaining traction and myself and um, my partner, we were, um, kept talking to everybody about it and we kept getting asked to be in, in kind of committee meetings and drafting bills and acts and just we kept sticking out or in everywhere going remember the citizens what about the citizens voice um, so you know that was starting to snowball so this is where we applied for uh, funding from big lottery at the time now the national lottery community fund um, got funded for three years to set up and become a proper organisation in our own right rather than two women on the corner of a kitchen table um, and this is where the co-production network came from and I've been uh, heading it up and steering it as the director for the past four years and um, it's turned into um, so we're now a social enterprise a not-for-profit organization we're independent we're not government funded our primary purpose is to support a community of practice of people who are interested in co-production and these approaches and you know co-production adjacent uh, approaches as well across wales slightly wider afield as well but most of our members are in wales and we We use that collective voice to influence policy, to talk to government, to talk to the civil service about the space that we're creating for co-production within our public services and and organisations. And we also support that with training and consultancy and hands on support for people who are actually looking to improve their work.
1: You mentioned some of the the values that uh, you believe should be in in co-production. So as a concept, co-production suggests equity and inclusion. But however, in my dealings and uh, in co-production, it's used uh, from the public sector, varies. So why do you think uh, co-production is important?
2: I think it's important first from a moral and ethical standpoint we've got public services that have developed into a pattern that's quite disempowering to people that to get help you have to keep coming back with more problems and you know that people who come and access services are little black holes of need and the professionals are the ones who have the solutions and the resources and it's a very one-way one relationship with, you know that's just not helping that's not helping on a, a, a mental, emotional, or psychological level. So there is that to start with. You know, human humanistic reasoning for it. Um, there is also the harsh reality that we've had more than ten years of austerity. We've had the impact of. COVID, which we're still figuring out how how much and, and how drastic it's going to be. We, public services just don't have the resources to meet people's needs in the way they they might have done or, or they were intended to when they were set up sort of 70, 80 years ago at the start of the welfare state. And so it's, from a financial and economic standpoint, it's just not possible to meet needs with the resources available in the way that things have been, you know, things are working. So we do need to work smarter as public services and not waste, not duplicate, actually leverage the resources and wisdom that are just so undervalued with our communities and our service users and actually work a lot smarter, do better. And that's possible if we start by listening rather than and coming with answers, rather than coming, sorry, coming with questions. Freudian slip, coming with questions rather than coming with answers and solutions and actually making wiser decisions because we're drawing on a a broader pool of wisdom. Uh, An additional factor, I think, is that in the past, I don't know, 10-ish years, as, as consumers... As citizens who are also consumers, we're used to interacting with private organizations and commercial organizations on our phones and five-star reviews and feedback on Amazon and, you know, being able to tweet the courier if the parcel's been kicked over the fence and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And we expect a response. and There's an expectation that's developed of responsiveness because of digital channels that carries across to public services in general and saying well you know why aren't you talking to us something's going wrong solve it we want you to listen so I think the the context of the expectations has changed as well which
0: contributes to this need. I really like the way you explain that that's it's a really helpful way to understand it so in terms of that then what are the things do you think are enabling co-production to happen and, and conversely what what's getting in the way of it what's blocking it?
2: I forgot one of the drivers, but actually it's probably one of the enablers as well, Uh is that because, particularly because I work in Wales, we've got legislation that's asking public bodies to do co-production and and involve people in in these processes. And I know there are equivalent pieces of legislation in England and Scotland as well that put people's voice at the centre of the delivery, at least for some aspects. So that's definitely one of the drivers and enablers. Um, You know, legislative compliance is not... To be neglected in in the the um, the direction that organizations take and, and how their strategic frameworks develop it 's definitely a big mm-hmm. nudge um, but that being said, something that you 'll just hear very often over here in Wales is that yes we 've got great legislation and it 's setting a fantastic vision this in direction of travel, but there 's still a gap in implementation they you know it's it's slow to catch up, and I think one of the the reasons why, and that i 'm not sure if it 's a barrier, but it's certainly a reason why things are slow is that co-production really is a value space it's a way of working it's a way of showing up it's not just a process that we can go right this is your new you know process or, or checklist and you know you can roll it out Monday but actually saying you've got to change the behaviors and the culture within the organization to shift into putting people at the center and that's got huge implications for us as public service professionals, how do we show up? What does it mean for us? How do we relate to people in a different way? There's a lot of soul searching that happens that I don't think we talk about enough. The internal work in enables you know, the external work and the change in the organization, but also the systems need to follow. All our systems are geared towards hierarchical command and control, centralized decision-making, levels of permission. And we need to break those down in order to make the decisions as close to the front line, as close to the action as possible, you know, with the right people at the right time. And so systems need to shift in response to that. And I think that's where the slowness is coming. I guess, in a nutshell, the barrier would be the speed of change of systems to adapt to the new needs of working this way.
0: That's very interesting. Do you you think sometimes by by implementing the process, more process side of it, that that can then drive that system change? Or does that have to come first do you think or both
2: at the same time? I think they come hand in hand definitely there's a risk um, that if people are very attached to the process and, and trying to get things done that they kind of lose or they forget what the value is behind it it can be tokenistic and Clinton was saying you know lots of uh, people talk about public uh, about co-production in public services and it doesn't always mean the same thing or with maybe the same rigor as you know that real integral value work and that's what happens sometimes our first minister said sometimes it gets sprayed on like a deodorant wood (laughs) and it's like oh if we make sure we've got one you know one service user at the table tech we've done co-production and Mm. it's just not so having the actions and the behaviors that we can track is useful but it's not the end in itself we need to make sure that there's an understanding of what comes you know what underpins it and I guess that's the you know, the the driver of the system change is the understanding of why that's needed and and what it looks like. There's, on the whole, from conversations I've been having, I tend to think that at executive and senior levels in organizations, there is a certain amount of buy-in to co-production, either because legislation says your organization has to co-produce with its service users and citizens or because people genuinely see the value and the impact they can have and then on the front line more often than not we talk to people who support people every day and who just like oh thank god yes just take the you know the admin and the systems get them out of my way so i can make the right decisions with people it's a very human and common sense way of working but there's a whole layer of people who are managing the systems in between the senior leadership and the, the frontline practitioners. And I have a lot of empathy for them because they need to keep things moving and delivering on a daily basis. And we're telling them that they need to work in a completely different way, but also that we can't tell them what the new way looks like by because by definition, co-production is we create it as we go. So we can't give them the picture of where they should be heading to, but at the same time, they have to keep delivering because otherwise people's lives might be at risk or, you know, things are really, you know, there's a real impact on the people that they support. So they're, they're in this impossible situation where they're trying to change the wheel on the car while they're trying to drive it. And mm. it's just really hard to be in that position. And that's where a lot of our support happens is helping people think through how they can adjust bit by bit while not failing in you know, the current delivery, but adapting it and learning as they're going and taking that innovation approach, which is a big mindset change for organizations.
1: My question leads on from uh, what you've been uh, saying, because I'm really interested how we can use co-production to transform uh, a a culture. And um, you mentioned about, you touched on value-based. And uh, for me, there's culture equals values times behaviors. And for, for me, I'd be really interested to try and understand we've had, through the pandemic, massive fault lines around inequalities. And the the further you are away as an individual or communities, the further marginalised you are from decision-making. What is the future for co-production? As we move out of the pandemic, what is the intentional actions that is needed to close the inequality gap for people and communities? I
2: think the first step is either relying on or developing new alliances. I talk to a lot of people in statutory organisations and civil service who know they need to co-produce with a whole different range of audiences and, and different kinds of people from the general population, and who just don't know where to begin to find them to have conversations in a supportive way. And so the first learning is use the networks you've already got. There's a lot of third sector organizations and community groups who are in touch with the people that you're trying to reach. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. And so we need to collaborate better between organizations to be supporting and reaching the people that we want to talk to. It's about understanding what people need to be involved in a fair and accessible way, because not everybody's got the same comfort levels, even the same accessibility needs, or just the same desire to be involved. And so we can't just provide one channel and one opportunity to have a conversation with an organization and go, oh, well nobody took up the opportunity. So it must be they're not interested. No, it means that we haven't got the right way to be interesting to them and to get in front of people in a way that's open and inviting. So we've got to use all the channels that are at our disposal and really understand what people need and when and how they want to get involved. And part of that is actually, you know, before we have the conversation about co-producing whatever it is that we're trying to co-produce well let's co-produce this engagement and ask what people need to come to the table do they want to what would make it easier how can we support and build that relationship before we start asking the questions my third element to that is thinking of it as an ongoing relationship and the advice I often say to people is don't be the annoying friend who only gets in touch when they want something you know, you've got to keep the conversation and the relationship going in between. Otherwise, why should people keep giving and giving and giving when actually they're not getting anything in return? So that reciprocity has to be there. They're telling people what you've done with the information they've shared, um, what's changed, what is happening, and, and let people get something out of it as much as you get something out of it as an organization so that it's a fair relationship there. And that would look different for everybody. So every, every case needs to be co-produced in a way in itself as well.
1: I've said about co-production before uh, uh, for me that if you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. So, uh, you know, for me, co-production is really important. And that has to be acknowledged because most, like I talked about, the inequalities element and for people and communities who are the furthest away will have less power. Mm -hmm you know, uh, uh, in the decision making. So for me, co-production has to balance the process uh, for uh, for access and outcomes for um, people and communities.
2: In terms of the practice I've been seeing in Wales, there are people who've been doing co-production for a long time, usually community-based organizations or some housing associations who really, really get the values of co-production and who who just, it, it just pervades kind of every, every fiber of their being as an organization. So it just, it nearly becomes, um, what's nearly something that that's not noticeable. Because it's just woven through everyday activities, so they 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 rarely, if ever, talk about co-production as a word. They don't ever. Need to use the term because it's not about talking about. It. It's about you know how they work, and you know residents are part of the decisions. People are part of the shaping the process. There's a fantastic organisation in West Cardiff called ACE. ACE. It's um, the acronym stands for Action in Cairo and Ely. Cairo and Ely are two neighbourhoods in West Cardiff. People come with ideas. People from the community come with ideas and go. Well, but there's a need for this, or can we do that? Or and they've been going for many years now, probably nearly 10 years, I think. And so they're at the stage where because they've woven that through from the beginning, while at the start, there were community support workers and people who were providing the momentum, it's really shifted into something that community owns as a collective. I think for the people who are closest to the communities, who have that, that approach, that value space, it's common sense. It's just, we grow people. We grow with them. We all grow together. We kind of we learn how to do this stuff together. For organisations that feel a bit more remote, trying to do meaningful engagement, the journey's longer. And often where they start is just trying to understand what good engagement looks like. It's quite far away from co-production, but it's the necessary stepping stones. Initially is making sure we talk to everybody who are the seldom heard voices, who are the people who never come to our consultations, Um, that actually if we decide to run things differently and go and have conversations in a different way that maybe we can hear from people that we don't hear about before. It's only a tiny thing, but that's the first step for them in terms of moving towards something that's more inclusive and more diverse.
0: Uh, the, the, the biggest take home for me listening to you reflect there is that this is about how you get to the co-productive mindset and organizational culture and behavior rather than the process in itself, but also by implementing the process that's also part of that journey too. How do you then sustain that? And I think that's the important thing. And I suppose leadership has a big part to play in, in all of that. And, uh, Huge. Yeah, yeah, there's
2: got to be a constant steer, constant reminder that this is what we're working to. And also constant permission. You know, deliberately making it really explicit that we're saying to people, it's okay to make mistakes.
1: Doreen, I'm, uh, what I'll take uh, away from uh, uh, this is... Um, Co-production has three levels, but one of the, uh, the easiest level is at the individual one-to-one
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, the co-production. Yeah. Then you have at the operational level for an uh, uh, organizational institution. Then for me, it's strategic level.
2: Yep. Um,
1: which is the hardest level, I uh, uh, I, I believe and trying to get that balance right. But one of that's the area where structural inequality lies in systematic. So what's your you know uh, thoughts on the structural uh, element of inequality
2: I think the structural element of inequality comes because the the structures, the systems have been designed with the systems in mind, not the people. And we have a machine that feeds itself and makes decisions that works for the machine, not for the people it's supposed to be serving. And so in terms of the system change and mindset change that we, you know, that go hand in hand and that we're trying to bring in, it's about saying, let's forget for a minute about what the system needs, that's less important, but who are the people we're supposed to be serving, you know, as public servants. Servants, service, you know, who are we serving? And I think we lose track of that because organizations, structures, systems, we've inherited them, haven't we? And they're broken and they're not actually serving people anymore. The, The machines are feeding themselves. If we could sort of break them apart and start again and set them up with different... Uh, you know set up a completely new system and structure and co-produce that we would have a very very different picture because it would be about what do we need the organization to be to enable us all to live the best life that we can to meet my, our needs to enable us to be human and people and um have you know recognize our achievements and our value at the moment the system is recognizing the value of the system not of people and we're trying to shift to maybe system isn't the right word anymore, but to a way of being where we recognize the value of people more than the value of the structure. It takes it takes time, it takes focus, it takes a, a commitment of, of focus on it. And people would like a silver bullet because everything feels so broken and drastic and urgent. But this is the opposite of a silver bullet. It's yeah. you know, something that needs to grow organically. This is a plant, not a bit little piece of metal and so we need to allow that to happen as well we need to accept that at least we can make a start and then it will go where it needs to go but that commitment of, of focus and going we're going to nurture this and allow it to grow is important